Hey, it's nice to have you guys back for another episode of the Art of Coaching podcast. A couple of things. This podcast is certainly not just for strength and conditioning coaches. We try to make that clear early on in the episode. This is for anybody who is looking to change the attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes of those they teach, lead, or guide, right? So I might be originally a strength coach by trade, but our work in this podcast is for everyone, regardless of vocation. So if you know somebody not listening and they're a leader or they're a guide or they just work with people and they enjoy learning what makes them tick and trying to improve their own behavior and the behaviors of others, please make sure to recommend the show. The principles and concepts discussed in our courses, live events, and everything else is the same way. Now, saying that, the last two episodes have had some training-related knowledge in them. This one's no different, right? And so I wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a couple webinars available on my website, and they're linked in the show notes, the first one especially. It's a Foundations of Program Design webinar. And this is for if you are a strength coach, if you're somebody that's just interested in health, wellness, performance, or what have you, this is an excellent primer for you to learn all about programming. Many of the concepts and principles that we use and I have used throughout the 13 plus years of my career. Listen, it gets really confusing when you listen to the media out there. If you're not a strength coach, if you are a strength coach, things can get really confusing due to the amount of information and research that continually comes out. So this is a primer and it covers everything from basic set and rep prescriptions, my thoughts on the use of bands and chains, contrast training, and even pneumatic resistance. It will show you how to break down your programming, both short-term and long-term. For my nerds that are strength coaches, as you guys know it, macro, meso, and microcycles. And at the end of the day, just gives you some good foundational knowledge. And sometimes that can be so helpful when we're dealing with information overload and we feel like everything's getting a little bit too complicated and we've gotten too cute with it, go back to the basics. So these webinars are super cheap. They're 60 to 90 minutes. They're all self-paced. There's a part one and part two. So please make sure to check out the show notes or you can go to my personal website, brettbartholomew.net and they're all available in the shop. So that being said, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you're in the United States listening to this, happy Thanksgiving if you are listening and the day it's released. If you're not in the United States, I hope you're just having a great week or weekend, no matter when you're listening to this. I'm grateful to have all of you as a part of my family here on the Art of Coaching Podcast. Now let's get this thing started. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me, and now let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Art of Coaching Podcast, guys. I'm here with Dr. Jacob Harden. Dr. Jacob Harden is a doctor specifically of chiropractic, and he owns and is the director of rehab at Orlando Sports Rehab in Orlando, obviously. Jacob, thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate you. 
Thanks for having me on, Brett. Yeah, no doubt. Like it's not, you know, on this show, we try to have a wide variety of practitioners uh, from a wide variety of professions. I always say that it's, it's from the weight room to the boardroom to the classroom and everywhere in between. Talk to us a little bit about how you got started in chiropractic and uh, give our listeners a little bit of springboard and insight into your journey, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So uh, I always tell everybody, like, I just kind of fell into it, honestly. Um, I was, so I, I went to the university of Texas and was a pre-med there getting my bio degree. And then, you know, through a series of events, just kind of got burnt out with school and couldn't quite imagine doing another, doing the rest of that schooling that would go through that. So took a little time off, um, from that it took about a year actually. And I, you know, I've always had a bit of an athletic background, played sports growing up and all that. And so uh, when I moved out to Florida, it just so happened that I was right next to one of the best chiropractic schools in the country. And like, I was, I was totally that guy that had never even been to a Cairo before. So like I went and took the tour of the school and everything. And you know, I just kind of heard how you can, you know, you can work with, I started envisioning, I guess, how you could work with athletes, how, you know, um, you, I could kind of have this kind of sports medicine based practice that I kind of wanted from a medical perspective anyway. Uh, so it seemed like a good fit for me. And so, you know, the type of person I am, I knew that if I didn't jump right on that, then I would talk myself out of it. So I actually like filled out my application that afternoon. Um, the rest is kind of history. Uh, but I, my wife and I opened up practice in Orlando straight out of school uh, about five years ago now and have been running a uh, private practice ever since. That's perfect. I appreciate that. Like, and here's the thing, right? This is what I want to ask you. Like a lot of times when strength coaches or performance professionals in general, it's always tricky to know what our field really wants to call itself half the time. Uh, when we think of an integrated profession, you'll hear people talk about sports medicine, sports science, performance nutrition, obviously strength and conditioning staff. Although sometimes I feel like chiropractic is, is met with a fair bit of skepticism, sometimes even way more so than, you know, traditional, like more physical therapy, massage therapy, although that's got its critics as well. You know, I, I want to start this off right off the bat. Give us an overview of, of what you think of, of some of that criticism of the field. You know, people, some, there's, there's people that think it's illegitimate that, that you guys aren't regulated and all this other stuff. I mean, obviously every field has its quacks, right? I tell everybody this, like you can be a doctor, right? A medical doctor, go through, go through med school, be, go through the license uh, procedure. And there's still, no matter what, right? Like at the highest level of anything, there's going to be quacks. So I'll start that off with that, but give us a little bit about what you think about the criticism fair and unfair about chiropractic and whether that really like what you have to do to navigate that perception. So I think, I definitely think, I think some of it is fair in all honesty. I think a, a, some of the criticism out there is completely fair as far as where the perception that the public has of the field. And, you know, I'm a, you know, take it all on you. Like you have to own your, you have to own your stuff. So I think that the perception that has, that the public has of us is our own doing. We've created that and it's up to us to, you know, change that. So there definitely is different subsets of the, of the profession. And unfortunately the one that we might call a little more like a quack or, you know, the pseudoscience aspect of it tends to be more vocal and they tend to make the news more. They tend to get the articles written about them because as we know, the more 
negative side of things kind of just tends to spread a bit easier than just saying that, oh, well, evidence-based practice, you know, no one wants to read articles about that. So that side of the profession doesn't really get talked about nearly as much, but it actually is a very large portion of the profession. And so while I do think that, you know, the criticism as far as to the side of the profession and that is saying that, you know, they can treat all these, you know, internal diseases and really anything outside of the neuromusculoskeletal realm. Um, you know, I, I, that criticism is warranted because as far as what we do, we sh- really should be more of a musculoskeletal specialist. That's how I view the profession. And that's how the more evidence-based side of the profession views itself as well. And, you know, this, it goes so high, even to the regulatory bodies. I mean, we totally, we very much are regulated, you know, at the state level, at the national level, we have organizations and everything else, and we have scopes of practice. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of gray areas in that and some leeway in that, that some people can take advantage of. But, you know, even at our national organizations, those are split. We have two of them. Um, the American Chiropractic Association and the International Chiropractic Association. And one tends to be more towards what we call the vitalistic side of things. And one tends to be more towards the evidence-based side of things. So we kind of have this divide right down the middle of the profession. And we're, we're, we're really working on it internally to try and shift that towards more of a, more towards that evidence-based side and t- more towards that, you know, primary musculoskeletal care. And I, you know, I always tell everybody that the, you know, when you look at a good physical therapist, a good orthopedic physical therapist, I should say, and a good Cairo, you really shouldn't be able to tell the difference between degrees because we're all seeing the same populations. We're all reading the same literature. We have the same scope of practice. So therefore our treatments should look basically the same too. Yeah, and that helps. I mean, you brought up a couple good jump-off points there. One, it's knowing that you're regulated at the state and national level. I think it's worth noting, you know, there's a lot of people that still, and these aren't new, right, but there's a lot of people that get really excited about stem cell treatments, and those those aren't regulated, right? Like, there's still a lot of ambiguity about that, and so I always just find it fascinating, since I study a lot about human behavior and perception, how we sometimes you know, uh, judge or assign kind of this, um, you know, uh, this value to something that's arbitrary on, on one end. And then the same end of the spectrum, we feel like we're totally justified and say, no, no, no. Yeah, this is legit, but that's not legit. And especially in strength and conditioning, this is a big argument right now. We've talked about it several times in the show is how do you die? How do you define what is a qualified professional? And you said, listen, you might not be able to tell, you know, at, at face value, but as you get into that, like if you were to evaluate, right, then this is just metaphorical. It's okay if like a year back you listen to this and you're like, oh my God, Brett, I don't like the answer I gave you. But like just off the top of your head, if you were to create some kind of evaluation on what a quality, a truly qualified chiropractor is, what would that look like? Or at least what categories would it entail both on the technical side and, you know, on the interpersonal side? I think that from a skill set perspective, the focus of treatment should be on exercise and education. First, it should be on active therapy and patient empowerment and taking steps towards helping the patient have more self-efficacy and having 
more control over their own condition and their own injury and being able to find self-management strategies toward and ways to help themselves. Um, you know, from a business perspective, we shouldn't be promoting lifelong care, you know, especially like the three times a week, see me all the time kind of care. Uh, the, you should not be promoting anything about bones being out of place, spinal misalignments leading to internal disorders, because that's just not where the evidence is pointing us. You know, it's, it really should look a lot more like, it should look like a blend of what you would think healthcare and strength conditioning should be like good exercise promotes health in the body and like take steps to be, to being healthy that we all know. And, you know, kind of if it, I hate to say if it quacks like a duck, you know, yeah, but no, no, that's fine. I mean, that, that, sometimes you know, it's like, that simple. there's some stuff that you know it when you see it. Yeah. Right. You know, when you, if you read, if you go on somebody's website and you're reading about how, you know, you always should get your spine checked and because spinal misalignments somehow lead to like your liver not functioning well. Yeah. Like you have to just look at that and be like, huh, really? But there are some people that sounds a bit far fetched. Right. And I I don't mean to interject, but I just want to make sure like, you know, because this is something that you do extremely well when you're talking about the, uh, you know, patient empowerment, self-management. We're going to get into that in a moment because that's that's what drew me to you. Like, I think that you do that better than most. Like you uh, you're like this lighthouse. And that's kind of what we envision ourselves at at Art of Coaching, I tell people, listen, if you can't explain what your company is in, in one paragraph, one sentence, one word, and one image, you don't have it. And to me, a lighthouse is something that like it empowers other people to go through the journey, but it still kind of guides them. But so let's say somebody's listening to this on the same train of thought you're getting into, and they are somebody that are like, you know what? I've seen a chiropractor and he made a couple of adjustments and, and you've, you've heard crazy shit, right? Like people are like, I swear I'm, I'm breathing more easily and I can taste strawberries with more, you know, like, and, and my vision's better, you know, and all this stuff. So that, that's a little bit of the placebo effect. Is it not? Although, you know, there's things that improve no doubt because of adjustment, but what is it about that process that converts people into these evangelists where they really think, yeah, my liver's functioning better now that I got, you know, that, that I got cracked a couple times a week. What, like what, what fascinates you about that? And where do you think that comes from? I think people are, I mean, people are naturally seeking out help. And when you have a problem and you've had a problem for a while and no one's been able to help you, you kind of start grasping at the, at the solution. Like you start looking for things. And you know, I treat a lot of people that have dealt with chronic pain And, you know, as an example, I treated somebody just last week who was told that their knee, the knee pain they were getting from squatting was caused by their elbow and that by doing soft tissue mobilization at the elbow, it would, it would free up their knee pain due to cross body fascial slings and stuff. Mm. And it's just, I mean, that's not, I mean, that's even in the realm of musculoskeletal care still. Right. And, but it's just like it makes you raise an eyebrow, like what in the world? What, how? Um, so, you know, but as far, but you know, if it helps you, our natural tendency is to believe that what you were told was true. Yeah. We start to assign value and meaning to those things. It's the post hoc fallacy. Yeah. Right. So if, if you did this, therefore 
that was caused by what I told you the problem was. Right. And so unfortunately, like it's just, there's a lot of placebo out there. There's a lot of things that work because we either, we believe it to work or maybe, maybe time just happened to align itself right with when you got that treatment. Maybe it gave you more confidence to get yourself moving. Maybe it reduced your stress around that area and you started to kind of expect it to get better. You started to, you know, not focus on it as much. You know, an example that I like to give there and I like to just have these kind of talking points with people is we've all probably woken up with that kind of achy knee you, you walked around on it. You're like, Oh, what the heck is that? And then you went to work and it wasn't there by the end of the day. Like you distract yourself away from some things and you stop thinking about some things and they kind of let themselves fade. Uh, so, you know, sometimes with these treatments, you're expecting them to get better. So you start to not necessarily focus on the burden of them as much. And therefore they start to kind of fade. So, I mean, there's so many factors at play with pain. We can never just say it's one thing, but a lot of why people just jump on these things are they've been, they've gone through an elaborate education process and then they're given a treatment. It helps for one reason or another, and therefore it's been anchored to that education they were provided. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing I want to highlight that you said there is great is this focusing illusion, right? This cognitive bias that occurs when people place way too much importance or even significance on one aspect of an event, right? And that causes an error in, in predicting, all right, well, what's the utility of this future outcome? And I think there's also this anchoring effect, right? Where like, sometimes people hear, oh, I went to this guy or, or this gal and they did this and everything was better. And now it's almost... It can have, it's a dual, it's a dualistic nature where it's kind of like somebody tells you, man, you need to go see this movie. It was hilarious. Well, one, you're either primed to also think that movie is hilarious. If you share on average, the same views as that individual, or you're going to be super disappointed, (laughs) you know? And so either way they have strong emotions tied to an outcome and, you know, pain, as you said, pain is almost like an emotion. It it really is like, you're right. Like in people, they attach this, this significance, even though we know it's a warning sign and it's a teacher. Uh, My friend, David Joyce always says it's got many layers and like nociceptors are just one part of the story. There's so much like uh, individual context associated with it. How many, be honest, you have more than 600,000 followers on Instagram. How many messages do you get? that are like, Hey, Dr. Harden, uh, why does my knee hurt and what stretch can I do for it? <laughs> it's about 99% of them. <laughs> and I'm always interested, uh, like, how do you respond to that? Walk me through this. It depends on the mood I'm in that day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it, you can, I really, the number one thing I'd have to say there is just, hey, I don't have, you know, off of very limited information, no exam, no background, it's impossible for me to tell you exactly why it hurts or what the best thing is. Um, as I can then sometimes, you know, maybe say in general, you know, I've done this with a patient and it's helped, you know, um, you know, sometimes somebody tells me, you know, I'm having pain with X, Y, Z movement whenever I get to X, Y, Z load. And you're like, eh, well, maybe you should, back that down a little bit to a controllable level and then rebuild off of that. But 
you know, the, the number one answer always has to be, Hey, without more information, anything I give you is just a shot in the dark. And I don't know how useful that really is for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, I think what always gets me about it. I, I love what you said about <laughs> it depends on the mood I'm in. I'm this, it's the same way for me because in, inherently where I go is well, and I always try to be respectful. I'm just like, Hey, have you checked out? Like I got one today this morning. It was, Hey, what advice do you have for a coach today? And like, if, like literally if you started in 2019, what would you do? Well, like we have previous podcast episodes on that, like obstacles early in your career. I have like a free ebook download. That's like 50 pages. that talks about that. You know, I got a book and then the pro. So what I'll say to them is I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm happy you asked that. Here are these resources. You know, I also have a book that's like 300 pages. It took me like three years to write. That'll tell you every damn mistake I made. And then like, so I, I, I leave that conversation feeling like, all right, I hopefully answered their question. I gave them resources. The vast majority are free. And then like 10 minutes later, Dr. Harden, I'll get, Hey man, where can I find your book then? And I'm like, dude, did you, uh, did you even check Amazon? Like, yeah, have you, have you, I, I have zero. I have zero tolerance for that kind of stuff. Right. Well, yeah, it's but, learned, it's learned helplessness, right? Like, and for you, yeah. for you, like looking at, and I encourage everybody listening to this, you have to go to Dr. Harden's Instagram and his other resources. I mean, you've made it idiot proof, which like, I don't think people appreciate the amount of work that goes into this, which is where I'm going next, Dr. Harden. But like, you look at the amount of work you put into these posts, whether it's ankle mobility routines, pinching hip. And I appreciate that you also put it in like common vernacular. I think there's some purists that would be like pinching hips. That's not what we call it. And you're like, yo, dude, I'm not talking to other practitioners here, right? Like I'm talking to the average Instagram person, but you've made it almost like just super easy for them to be empowered, to manage that. Like what goes into that? How many hours do you spend a week creating this kind of content? And where do you still find like, you know, where do you still find like that people really like just don't understand it enough? Cause I, I know you, you sometimes think like, all right, this is self-evident. And then somebody's like, yeah, but you forgot this picture. Can you just walk us through this? Yeah, it's, I, I mean the hours per week, I kind of have his own system now, so it's not too bad, but I would say anytime I make a post, it's probably going to be two hours of work for that one minute video from the, and that's from developing an idea, what I'm going to say, filming it, then going into post and, you know, getting all that done, getting the subtitles put on it. Cause I caption every video um, that I talk in because I found out I kind of have, a, I have a large deaf audience and I wanted to make sure oh, that really? they get that information. Um, yeah, that was actually really interesting. Yeah, I started, I started doing it on just one or two videos just cause I thought it would be a good idea from an algorithm perspective that the majority of people watch videos with the sound off. So captions would help. But then like, I got this like influx of messages from being like, Hey, I'm, I'm deaf or partially deaf and I can't, you know, I thank you so much for doing this. So that was really cool. Um, and then putting the titles on it, you know, coming up with the title that I think is going to grab someone's attention so that they will watch it. Uh, all that takes about two hours per post. And then it just depends then how frequently am I posting? I, you know, for three years straight, I did a video every single day and just like in the past, probably four months have backed that off to every other day to maybe having two days in between just to more for my own longevity and not getting burnt out with it. And this is something I'm always fascinated by too, is as somebody that, 
you know, I've created a lot of content over the past five, six years, and I'm probably nowhere near the the layer of depth, right? Like that, that you have, what you do is phenomenal. I think, and I'm still in that struggle phase where like I do all my own stuff, answer all my own comments, answer all my own DMs, and I don't have like a video crew, right? Like it's still, it, it just, there's a lot of nuances to it. But like one thing I'm always freaked out about is one day you and I know that Instagram and all these other things are going bye-bye, right? And something new uh-huh. will take their place. And so I am one of those doomsday people in regards to like, holy shit, I need to like back this up or make sure that I own it on my own native site or whether it, you know, like I'll save captions in Google Docs in case Instagram like boom is gone because some of my captions are huge, right? Like they can almost be like books, just like some of your videos, like you spend a ton of time on that. What's your process, if you don't mind me asking for like backing this up, making sure that like if Instagram or any of these things went down today, you're not like, oh shit. Uh, everything is, I have everything on terabyte drives. Yeah. Like one of those yeah, hubs. Yeah. So everything, basically every video, whatever the title of the video is on the page has a folder on a terabyte drive. And that's what every video picture gallery post, whatever I did that day is it's sitting inside that folder. Um, and it's, you know, it has the date that it was made on. So if I need to, that makes it really easy for me to find it. If I ever want to repost it as well, because, um, for quality purposes yeah. in that, you know, I can just scroll down, see the date and then go find it. But it's one of the things you just got to like, it has to be automated where you just, you do it. It's then part of the process. You go, you put it into the terabyte drive, it's done. And you know, you're kind of, you're, you're good. (laughs) Yeah. And this is simply my own curiosity as well. Are you, for most things, are you a Google drive, Dropbox guy, OneDrive? What, what's your preferred method? Do you use a combination? Uh, Google Drive is my number one. And that, you know, that's probably because I have like five different email accounts. <laughs> uh, that all serve, like I have that I have ones that serve different purposes, like because it's just, rather than having things go to folders, I just have like my personal email. I have kind of my professional email. I have my clinic email. I have my seminar email. And then I actually just cre- I actually created one that I, purely for whenever I sign up for promo stuff to get free free downloads for uh, email lists that I kind of don't necessarily want to be on, but I do want to see, see what that free download is. Yeah. Better not include mine, Jacob. You better be on my, yeah, my uh, newsletter for the damn right reason. You're right. You're right there in the professional email. I look forward to those. Damn right. <laughs> I appreciate it. So and going back to what we were talking about a, a moment ago, and I loved this quote that you had when I was brushing up on you and just learning more about everything that you're doing. Uh, you said, I feel like the movement world is really paralleling the nutrition world from about a decade ago. I feel like this is a huge, th- there's a lot packed into that. And I would, I would agree just to, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. But for me, I, like I see this in regards to almost like this obsession with perfection too. Like uh, there are people that still think perfect movement patterns exist. And I used to be one of them. Like I used to think, oh, that squat, there's a little bit of valgus here. No, that's not pure. Like this is, oh, we see this, the big big toe, pinky toe aren't staying uh, on the ground on the single, uh, on the unilateral RDL. And then you just realize, no, no, no. It's Everybody's got their own movement signature. Like, so when I look at that, I think this obsession with perfection is so misplaced. But what do you mean by that comment? Yes, that's basically along the lines of what I mean. If we look at the nutrition world from about a decade ago, we saw like the clean eating 
craze that came in where everyone was ultra obsessed with quality and kind of ignored quantity for a little while. So it was like focusing on the wrong things. Then the whole macro tracking thing kind of came in and you kind of threw quality out the window for a little while in terms of food quality. And we would see people that, well, if it fits, if it fits in your macronutrient profiles, then eat whatever you want. And, you know, it's all about numbers because body composition is all that matters. And, you know, you would see people trying to get like all their daily calories in by cooking a cheesecake or something, you know, just to show that they could. So we went from this purely focus, pure focus on quality to then almost a pure focus on quantity. And now you, we kind of see this, they've balanced out like, oh yeah, you should eat fruits and vegetables. You should have most of your diet be nutritious whole foods, but you also shouldn't fret about going out and having some pizza and a beer with your, with your buddies, you know? So quantity and quality kind of matter. You just need to prioritize. And so from the movement side of things, I think we've gone and we're probably, you know, we're probably still in different phases is that you have one camp that is still very, very quality focused. And it's like that, you know, that minuscule amount of valgus, or you see that arch, you know, go down just a little bit. And all of a sudden, you know, you're setting yourself up for injury, which kind of negates the whole adaptive process of the body and the whole uniqueness of it. So they're kind of our quality camp. And then, you know, on the other side of that, you have people that, you know, when the pendulum swings one way, we know it's going to swing back the other way too. So, we have another camp that's kind of eh, quality doesn't really matter. Move however you want to. There's no good and bad. And I think eventually we're going to get to that balance point where, you know, there's probably is a best way whenever things get really difficult and bio biomechanically, there's probably a less injurious way, a lower risk way to do things. Not that your body's not adaptable and not that you can't, perform things on a one-off every now and again, but there's probably a best way to train and there's probably a best way to deadlift versus there's probably not a best way to go and pick up your wallet off the ground. Sure. It's a, it's a dimensional scale, right? Like not necessarily categorical. Uh, like it, it's not always as binary as we want to make it. I remember before I even became a strength coach when I was probably like uh, 16 or 17, um, you know, I would always try to mimic whether I was squatting or doing something else, I'd try to mimic what I saw in, you know, in magazines or videos. And I'm somebody that has very limited ankle mobility. Like, yeah, like I'm not a natural squatter, despite my, my size, I'm about five, eight. And, you know, I would, I would try to go this narrow. Cause you'd read, Oh, you don't want your, you only want your feet about hip or shoulder width apart, all this. And then I noticed that, you know, my feet would stagger just slightly. I mean, I may be talking an inch and it was funny with what you said earlier about how people will draw these crazy conclusions. I had PTs be like, you listen, like you lack big toe extension. And because you're staggered, you're going to, you're going to, uh, there's going to be so much more sheer and you're going to have this, but I chased perfect movement for so long. And then I thought about like how many people actually line up. And if we literally got everything out and measured like, Nope, the right foot and the left foot are directly proportional. Everything's perfect. There's no compensation whatsoever. Like that's just, that's not reality. And once I quit, you know, obsessing about it, which didn't mean that I didn't pay attention to it, didn't mean that I didn't strive to make it better, but quit obsessing about it, you know, like it's like, okay, now like I actually feel better where sometimes when I try to force myself into these quote unquote perfect patterns, I either would not feel stable or it would have led to an injury. That was like when the big thing was PRI. I, I naturally yeah. have a little bit of an anterior tilt 
So I literally had a therapist, and this was a, before I knew much about this stuff, say, hey, when you get under the bar, you know, posteriorly tilt your pelvis. And I'm like, huh? And then, you know, so I'm like, fuck it. They know more than I do at this point in my career, so I'm going to try it. And wouldn't you know it, like back ended up getting jacked up, you know? And so as a, as a strength coach, like I was really grateful, like for any other opportunity I could, like later on in my career, I'd always try to integrate as much as possible because I met so many people. I was like, you're telling me, that the reason I feel like you said pain in my elbow or shoulder is because I lack big toe extension and that I should posteriorly tilt my pelvis when I have 400 pounds on my back, probably not. You know what I mean? It's one thing to be mindful of <laughs> yeah. your posture throughout, but like it just never ends, does it? And that's where I, I totally agree and love that line with you is like with the nutrition side of things and with this, it's like we just go so off base because we want to create our own world and playground where all these rules apply and that's just not how movement always is it's not clean and clear always is it no exactly i mean isn't that the way it goes with most things though yeah. when a new topic kind of becomes the hot topic we get kind of hyper obsessed with it Hey everybody, we're gonna get right back into this episode. I don't want you to miss any of this, but I did wanna remind you that as part of the Art of Coaching audience, if you use the code BRETT20, again, that's my first name, B-R-E-T-T-2-0, BRETT20 at checkout at livemomentous.com, anything they have there, you are gonna get $20 off your first order. If you're not familiar with Momentous, just a reminder, Momentous is the premier sponsor of the Art of Coaching podcast. In short, they're the reason I'm able to bring this information to you guys for free. They're, uh, they help me cover the cost of the podcast and all the other content that I, I'm able to get to you guys. So, you know, their support is huge. Now, if you're not familiar with the products, they have a wide range, everything from their absolute zero grass-fed whey. And again, guys, this is all whey isolate, the purest form of whey, uh, arc fire grass-fed whey. Not only that, they have a 100% plant protein for those of you that can't do whey. They have strength recovery, and they're always coming out with new and unique products. Now, one of the reasons I partnered with Momentus is I am a minimalist when it comes to any of this stuff. I'm a big believer that consistency in your training, sleep, hydration, and just good nutrition are the most powerful supplements. Uh, but there are certain staples that we can't get around, and we have to be able to source in the most responsible way possible, and that we also have to just be able to add in through supplementary form, whether that's because we have busy lifestyles, because we have digestion issues, any number of factors. And so, you know, protein and fish oil is really the only thing that I take every now and then I might experiment with some other stuff that's all natural, but I'm not really, I'm from the Midwest. So there's a running joke that we kind of grew up on, on steak and milk, but momentous is absolutely something I am behind a hundred percent. And again, if you just use the code Brett20 at anything on livemomentous.com, or you can check out the Art of Coaching Momentous link on the show notes, you're going to be hooked up. Thanks again for your support. And now back to the episode. Yeah, especially in our field, that's just the nature of it. You look at the personalities right. and the archetypes in our field we gravitate to things that, cause we want to make a difference. So we're like, holy shit, this is it now. I mean, you see it now with sleep, quote unquote, sleep hygiene. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. funny, like since all of this, whether, you know, what you do with chiropractic care, myself as a strength coach and, and other people in their professions, they're arts that are guided by science. And so we're always going to gravitate towards like, all right, now we've got their nutrition lined up. They're, they're a little bit about better about self-care, they're lifting, but they're still not getting all the results we want. What can we go to now? Oh, sleep. 
how many hours of sleep are you getting? Seven to eight. Yeah, but are you looking at screens 30 minutes before? Like we create this world of meaning that is not all that indifferent than when like, you know, early man looked up at the stars and we're like, yep, that's definitely the spirit of our ancestors shining down. You're like, <laughs> you're like nope, those are actually flaming balls of gas. <laughs> like, um, and it's not that it's wrong. I don't want anybody listening to get all like, I'm not saying that the pursuit of these things isn't great. It's just like, where where's the tipping point? Where's the breaking point of bullshit where it's like, we've just got to be okay knowing that like, we don't know everything and we just got to keep trying. And I think it's also, I, I agree with, with you there. I think another thing there is just like, you have to realize that you're never going to be in control of everything. Yep. You know, to do kind of pivot off of that to something, one of those topics where like myself, I became very, very interested in and very invested in, in the past two years, training load and measure, measuring training loads and ratios and, you know, the metrics of keeping people, you know, um, from getting injured because that's a big hot topic right now Yep, is how much can that help us if we have variability in stress levels and sleep levels and hydration and nutrition and all these other factors do all the metrics actually mean anything for us if we're being variable in all the other aspects of our life well because there's so many things going on so, which I still think that it, I still think it matters. I still think that we should be tracking things. I really think that we should be having some sort of bead on some sort of framework as to what we do. And we probably shouldn't be doubling our workloads every other week, but we also need to realize it's probably not in this tight knit range that if you go beyond, you know, X amount of uh, X amount of increase on your workload. Oh, you're going to get hurt. Or if you're under, you're going to get hurt because you know you manage when you you know you manage on four hours of sleep for three weeks back here, and now you're doing really well. So you know your body just kind of is going to figure it out too. And you probably just need to look at extremes and just put things into kind of a checklist and say, all right, am I doing pretty good on this, 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 this? all right, I'm doing the best I can here. Let's follow the process. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you say just for our audience, because you're right, training load and all that is a very hot topic right now. Uh, can you give us an idea of how you look at load, how you measure it, how you manage it, just get and, and give everybody a little bit of insight on training load in case somebody listening is not familiar. Sure. So training load is basically trying to find some sort of quantification of how much work you're doing and how hard was it for you. So different metrics out there, and I use different ones based around who I'm working with. Um, For some of my higher level athletes, we use the session RPE, which is just the Borg category ratio 10 scale where it's going to be a zero to 10 scale ask where zero is basically no effort at all. 10 is a maximal effort and you can multiply that by the minutes of activity that they used. And the basic gist of it is track that. And then we want to see, we don't want to see huge spikes in that workload. So don't double your workload over, you know, every other week, like I said, Um, And depending on the population you're in, we have data that says, okay, it should fall between, you know, 0.8 to 1.3 units if you were to divide your acute by your chronic workloads. 
Um, so I use that uh, with some of my higher level guys. I think that for the gin pop, that that's a little bit more, it gets into a little bit more detail than probably they need for their adherence levels. And so there, I really just, I use that. I still will use that session RPE, but we look very much more so at just, okay, well, how hard was that workout? You know, because if we go by, like, if we want to have a, on paper, a hard workout, it should fall within the top end of that range. If we want to have, if we have a programmed light workout, it should fall within the lower end of that range. But if you're coming in on a light day and you're telling me it's really hard, well, we should probably adjust something. And I think that that's typically how I use that, that scale with my, uh, with more of my average training clients and more of my gen pop clients is looking more so at that internal load, that response of, okay, how hard was that for you? How hard did we plan for that to be for you? And then how are you feeling in response to that? And with that, it's, and I know there's some people chomping at the bit because the acute chronic workload stuff has come under some fire lately. And that's beyond the scope of this episode. I hope the people are taking what you said, you know, at, 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 understanding really the context behind it is regardless of what you believe or the methods you use, whether it's the Borg scale, anything else, right? Cause everybody wants to, I've almost feel like we've started to commodify, um, you know, evaluations and measurements and quantificate. Like in the past, it was like, Oh, you're a good and ethical, incredible professional. You know, you're getting there. If your treatment practices match up with the fact that you're at least testing people, right? Cause there's a lot of people that don't even test, reassess, keep proper records, whatever. Now it's like almost elitist, I, I find this, it's like when people are like, oh, you're using a Tendo. Well, you know you could buy a force plate. Oh, you're using uh, this, a Brower timing system. You know you could use this. I'm like, bro, like every day something new is going to come out. Like the important thing is that it's reliable method and it's consistent and that you're doing it. And so I love that you have a process and you're right. Like what matters is that you use things that are easy to understand for your population and that they can be implemented. We had an episode, Jacob, that was like, what's the best exercise for performance? Um, because I get asked that question probably as often as you get, why does my knee hurt? So we did a whole thing on context and breaking that down. And what I tell people is anytime you get into this best, what's the best way to monitor, to measure? I say like, listen, like, who are you? What do you have access to? What's your budget? What's your population? What's your end goal? And what's your knowledge of the subject and your ability to communicate it? Because that all outweighs this golden best bullshit that we're constantly fed out there. Like use something consistently, stick with it and don't have FOMO of like evaluation. Would you agree? Feel free to shoot that down if, if you don't think so. No, I, I would agree. Uh, I would agree to some extent on that. I think that, like you said, there's, you have to fit it to the population, right? And like you said, you know, what do you have access to? How can you communicate that, et cetera? Depending on the population, you might also need to step back and be like, okay, this person actually really needs to have this sort of testing done. Sure. And if I, if I can't do that, maybe I don't need to work with that client either. Yeah. And we see that in the rehab world. Um, an easy example there is uh, ACL testing after somebody's had an ACL reconstruction is, you know, some, a lot of clinicians are still using manual muscle testing to determine the like quad strength. It's like, that's not good enough no, at no. all. And if you don't have at least 
some sort of force gauge handheld dynamometer, then you probably just don't need to be seeing that client or you need to be referring them out for better testing, you know, and that's you know, you, like, that's just doing the right service to the, to the person. Sure. But whenever I have my, you know, whenever I have my 35 year old lawyer come in, who's having a little bit of patellar tendinopathy, you know, I don't necessarily, I can probably just get a rep max for him and on his split squat and say, all right, well, he was able, he got stopped at, you know, a hundred pounds at 16 reps. That's when pain stopped him. So if we, and whenever we went up to 120 pounds, he got stopped at eight reps. All right. We have some checkpoints that we can then we have objective data. And whenever he is, whenever he can do this and he can surpass that benchmark that we've established, then we know he is objectively better. And so as long as you, as long as you have some sort of objective measure there to that, you're not just relying on your own subjectivity of saying, oh, yeah, I think you're better. Yeah. I kind of feel better. You know, it can scale and it scales with the level of the injury. It scales with the level of the athlete. It scales with the demand of the person. And you just have to make sure that you're you're putting on your critical thinking hat to determine uh, when are you using the right thing. Yeah. And, and making sure that you're not running wild with the information it gives you, right? Because we know that like, again, any data we collect is, context dependent and it's always going to be, I mean, I, I found it fascinating. I know, uh, you know, Mike Boyle was talking about his thoughts on, you know, good exercises and bad exercise. That's how he terms them. And he was talking about, you know, a leg extension. And then a therapist was like, actually leg extensions can be really good for these purposes and evaluative measures. And then that started to cascade O arguments about like, well, what are those measurements worth? If it's isolating like that and we don't isolate it in sport. And then, you know, the rabbit hole, this shit goes down, right? Like, oh yeah. so what, what are your thoughts on that in general? Like, and I know it can, we can go super deep here. So I'm not asking you to write a manifesto. I don't want to like monopolize your time, but I, I do think that people are drawn to the polemic and we, I mean, I know how I feel when all of a sudden something comes out in the journal of strength and conditioning research where it's like, yeah, we use a leg press for this. I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it. Like you can control some variables in it, but like you can only extrapolate the meaning of that so much. What are your thoughts in terms of quote unquote, good exercises, bad exercises, what's used in the research, how applicable that is? Uh, could you just talk about that for a moment? Yeah. So I don't think there's any, I think that the label of good and bad is probably not an appropriate label. I agree. And optimal and suboptimal for your goals is probably a better label. Um, Appropriate and inappropriate would be a good label for that as well. So to take like something, because the, the test can only tell you what the test tells you. Like it tests what it tests. So if we use a leg press as a test, it tells us what you can do on the leg press. It doesn't really necessarily tell us what your, what your sprinting is going to look like. It doesn't tell us what your deceleration is going to look like. It really doesn't even tell us what your quad strength is. There's a, um, there was a study done because the gold standard for, say, quad strength post-ACL uh, reconstruction is, is an isokinetic um, dynamometer testing. And, you know, there was a, there's been studies that looked at the leg extension, the leg press, even handhelds. Um, 
as a proxy to the isokinetic and real like the leg press is not good like it doesn't match up at all there can still be good there can still be big deficits side to side even with the leg extension there can be big deficits side to side even whenever it looks normal on let's say the leg press because you can use the glute you can use other stuff sure and i think that was I, i think like you know and that's what coach boyle was saying is like even when we quote unquote isolate things. Like he was trying to say, like, you're not really isolating things, right? There's co-contraction. There's co-contraction there. And so when people are like, well, you're saying you shouldn't isolate, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, keep going. I like where you're going with this. Right. So if you want to look at the athlete's ability to perform a skill, then test that skill. Yep. If you want to look at the capacity of a specific muscle, you need to isolate it to the best of your ability where other stuff can't help. So a leg press is not going to be a good proxy for something like quad strength. A leg extension would probably be better because you could strap the thigh down, make it to where they can't move. And the only thing you can do is leg extension, right? And if you could find some sort of one RM or rep max on that, then you have a better objective measure. If you can use some sort of force gauge, you have an even better objective measure, you know, and the more that you can isolate out that specific thing, the more you're going to be able to say, okay, that thing is meeting the baselines that we're looking for. That thing is improving. If, and so you just have to ask, do you need that level of isolation or do you need to look at a pattern as a whole? So going back to my example of if I have of my lawyer, if I have that, uh, if we have that guy and he's telling me that he's getting his knee pain whenever he squats, well, I should probably just look at his squat because I know that that is touching it at some sort of load. And we could, it probably wouldn't be the only test I would do because what if we have him go through it? And we build up his load over six weeks, but now he's shifting back into his hips and not actually using his quads as much. So he's not actually loading his knee as much and he's found a workaround. So if we're going to use that test, we need to be filming it to look at, okay, well, biomechanically, is he doing it the same way as he was doing it before? And if he's not, then we need to adjust something and we need to look at it with the same qualitative aspects as well as quantitative too. And so it just gets into reproducibility. Whatever you do, you want to make sure that it is looking at what you're trying to look at and you need to make sure that you can reproduce it in the same manner over and over again. Yeah. And from a communication standpoint, what role does that play, you know, with everything that you guys emphasize at Orlando Sports Rehab? Because obviously it's you know, no matter how analytical we get on that side, you know, the measurement and the assessment and, you know, or evaluation, whatever term anybody wants to use. And, and those are obviously a little bit different in the education realm, uh, formal assessment and evaluation. But like what, uh, how, what role, what are some things that you learned in your journey of like, all right, now I have this technical knowledge related to my trade craft specifically around chiropractic and, and other elements of physiology, biomechanics, everything like that. What, what role does communication play in this process for you and everything you guys espouse there? It is, I would say at the very top of our priority list is being able to communicate effectively why we are making the decisions we are making. 
and why we are making the recommendations we are making. Because if a patient does not understand why they're, why you're having them do things, then their adherence is likely to be much lower and they're likely to leave with a lot more confusion and they're likely to go have to start looking things up on their own. And I trust me more than I trust the internet to give them that information. (laughs) So our ability to communicate with them is vital, I think for our outcomes and not necessarily like, Oh, well, if we communicate better outcomes, just dramatic all all of a sudden better, but it leads to a cascade effect of better understanding and better adherence to the program as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, when I first started off in strength and conditioning, I started working with fighters. I trained other boxers in exchange for my training and, you know, still having worked with UFC fighters and, and professional boxers and stuff like that. You know, I remember one time having a conversation with uh, Andre Berto, you know, it was like, Hey, you know, lifting weights is gonna make me slow this or whatever. And he ended up, I mean, he was awesome to work with, but I said, listen, Andre, like getting stronger one, isn't going to do that shit. But I mean, I go getting stronger does not guarantee you're going to win the fight, but being weaker will absolutely increase your chances of losing it. And I say the same thing with communication. Cause our motto is kind of, you know, it's more successful interventions, are the result of more successful interactions. And like you said, is there a direct court? Like, can, can you prove that just because you can communicate better that somebody's going to have a more successful outcome? Well, no, not in every circumstance, but I can prove that if you communicate like shit and really unclearly and in a really biased way, that it'll absolutely de- like degrade the outcome, right? And so it's like, it always fascinates me when people want to kind of like, I'm like, what's your argument here that you don't need to communicate? Okay, well, then I guess we'll all be re- like replaced by AI, like some other professions. You know, within that, Dr. Harden, because we talked about evaluation on, on the technical side of what you do from a, a chiropractic standpoint, what, about, what do you guys do, if anything, from an evaluative measure on like the way you guys communicate and a formal process of, of upgrading that or working on that formally as a staff. Do you guys have a process there? Uh, to be honest with you, no, we don't. Uh, it's probably something that we should have is evaluating our own ability to communicate. Um, I think, you know, just, we do send out patient questionnaires asking about their, you know, how did you, you know, how was your experience here? What did you like? And I guess one thing that we do ask there is, you know, did you feel that you came away with a good understanding of your condition Mm. and what you needed to do to move forward? And so we can look then at, you know, oh, well, this person said, you know, is saying that, you know, they don't have a very good understanding. Well, let's talk about that. Why do, you know, why do they feel that way? What did you say to them? And we'll kind of talk it out as, you know, between us, you know, or if somebody comes in and they're, it seems like they didn't, they just didn't get everything you said, then we have to be like, we have to kind of step back and be like, all right, well, what did we say there? Why, why there? Um, so it's not necessarily a formal process 
in evaluating that. That's more than most. But it is it's something. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I and I asked that for a totally biased question. I mean, it's just uh, you know. One thing I worked a large percentage of the last couple of years on is creating uh, more education around these things because that's what I realized. Like at a time where I wanted more evaluation on the non-technical skills related to, directly to strength and conditioning, I was like, where else can I improve as a coach? And you look around and there's stuff in the literature about coach evaluation, but all of it is like, I mean, you know how it goes, right? A little bit of research is phenomenal. A little bit more is even better. But then sometimes it goes so crazy where I found any kind of evaluative tool out there for coaches, specifically on the communication side, was like insane or non, it, it, it just wasn't there. And so that's, right. that's something that we do in our apprenticeships. And a lot of them are improv based. And I feel like you'd kill it, which by the way, you have a comp spot anytime you want to come. But we put coaches or practitioners in, in, in improv-based scenarios, some of them goofy, some of them serious, and they've got to create something from nothing. And we evaluate them on, hey, when you were in this situation of uncertainty and where you were maybe even a little bit uncomfortable because there's a heightened reality, you know, where did, what did we look at and how did we score you in terms of verbal, nonverbal, your ability to navigate conflict, your ability to personalize and individualize the messaging, your ability to do all these things. And uh, I think that's where it's funny, right? Like it doesn't need to be perfect to be helpful. And so even, yeah. even you saying like, well, yeah, we send out questionnaires. Yeah, I mean, man, there, there's so many people that don't even do that. So I applaud you on that front. Is there anything else you want to add on that piece? I think that you have to be self-reflective yeah. with that too. Like I think that the people that are going to grow the most are the ones who are very self-reflective naturally ask yourself like, you know, how did I feel coming out of that conversation too? Did I feel like they got what I was trying to, what I was trying to say there? Um, which, because none of us are perfect right. at all. I had a patient two weeks ago that I had an initial assessment with and I came away from it. Like, you know, I think I just, I think I said a lot of stuff that maybe didn't need to be said yeah. one. <laughs> and I don't know that I necessarily got across the point that I was actually trying to get across for this person. Um, they were someone who was, you know, they're dealing with some shoulder pain and they had had injections in their shoulder and wow. they wanted to go and get repeat injections for that shoulder. And I don't think I necessarily got my message across as to why maybe that hasn't helped them so far and what they needed to do to move forward. And so, you know, I reflected, I've reflected on that and I've been looking forward to our follow-up, which I had, earlier this week. And so earlier this week, you know, I made that a talking point of like, cause it came up again and got to have a better conversation because I reflected on the previous one and, and kind of, you know, I criticized myself and like asking myself, okay, just how can I be better? Because my gut tells me I didn't get this right. Right. No. And, and that's, that's the fun of it. I'm glad you said that because that's almost the most fun I have with my own workshops is, you know, if you were to put me into these scenarios and I jump in and, and do it just as much as anybody. And the nice thing is I'm like, yo, I'll make mistakes. There'll be, there'll be exercises where you'll, and, but that's so much fun in your career when you get to the point where like, I find that there's a direct correlation between somebody who says like, yeah, if you're really dedicated to being a lifelong learner, 
then you're also not somebody who is supremely risk averse, right? Because you don't go into self-preservation mode to sit there and rationalize your way out of like, well, I did it this way because of that, you know? And that's part of the reason we make some of the improv exercises borderline, not ridiculous, but just unrealistic in terms of time constraints or, you know, do they have to say something with, uh, do they have to begin a sentence with the last word that the previous person said is because we've got to get them out of that defensive mechanism of trying to sit down and equivocate why they said something a certain way. It's like, no, 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 man. Like, you don't get it. We're stacking the deck so you fail in these exercises. So you have to be reflective. So you can't sit there and try to like, uh, be like well, I did it this way. No, man, it's okay. You failed. You messed up. And that's that we're all going to do that in communication. And so, yeah, I think you're spot on, Dr. Harden. Like, you have to be reflective. Is there a way that you feel like you can cultivate that in somebody that isn't? You know, say you hire a new uh, a member of your staff today, and man, like, he's prodigious in his technical skills and his knowledge of chiropractic care in the body, but he's just not very reflective. How do you approach that conversation with him? I think it's, if it's in your business, it probably has to be a part of your culture that, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to your locus of control. Like, I think a lot of that speaks to what is your locus of control? Yeah. Are you an external locus of control person that it's always like, they didn't understand because it's on them. They didn't adhere to their program because of them, or is it an internal locus of control of what could I have done better? And one, I don't know how, you know, that's gonna be, that's tough to change in the first place. But the way that I would approach it is I would, I would speak on my own failures first. I would put my, I would try and meet them in that reality and say, so here's where I, here's where I've needed to improve this week. Here's where I've needed to improve over my last 10 encounters. And so it doesn't come across as like an attack on them and their skill set and how somehow they've somehow they failed because none of us want to be a failure and say, it's not, it's not a failure. It's, it's room for improvement. It's room for growth. And we're all sitting here trying to grow myself included. And here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I need to do. And I might ask them based on what I've told you about this encounter with this patient, what do you think I could have done better there? And we might start the conversation that way before we then jump into their visit with their patient. And I then give them feedback based around where I think they could improve too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Well, listen, you have been more than gracious. I haven't exactly given you easy questions to answer. And I appreciate the fact that you don't dip, duck, dodge, dive. What is the other seventh one of, of dodgeball there? Uh, I mean, the, the information's tremendous. The, the breadth of the discussion and topics we covered and, and your transparency and guys, I can't say it enough. I don't really, you know, I make it a point to vet the people that are on this podcast pretty hard. Um, you know, like if they're not people that are transparent and have not put in countless hours trying to, uh, provide you with useful, helpful content. And they're also just, you know, good quality, high character people. So, you know, make sure that you check out all of Dr. Harden's stuff. Dr. Harden, what's, what are the best ways for them to support you and to find you on social media and elsewhere? So my main platform is going to be my Instagram platform, Dr. Jacob Harden. Um, I'm on every social platform that you can find out there too. I mean, YouTube, Facebook, all that. So you can find me anywhere, uh, but you'll see the most majority of my content 
on that platform. Um, if anybody wants to come out, I do teach continuing education for health and fitness professionals. And we get into a lot of these topics about testing and load management and exercise prescription and how we kind of put all this together into a plan that we can, uh, we can actually help people with. And so we try and simplify things. So if anybody wants to come out, I teach a course called Prehab 101 and I'm all around the world with that one too. Yeah. And, and guys, you can find that again, please do your due diligence. Don't email him and say, Hey, where, where's the next prehab one-on-one? He's got that linked in his Instagram. It's on his site. It's on all that. I mean, not that Jacob wouldn't be happy to answer that question for you, but I guess I'm just really big. And most of the listeners can tell right now, Dr. Harden through a lot of my previous episodes. Like, I just think that the worst thing we can do is spoon feed people. I think, like you said, we got to empower them. They got to do the due diligence. And, uh, you know, I think that leads to, you know, a, a higher quality individual coming to those things as well, because people that want the easy route aren't going to engage anyway. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough. Hopefully this was valuable to you as well. And know that you're welcome back on, uh, anytime. Oh, thanks very much, man. I look forward to it. Look forward to chatting to you again. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, guys. Until next time, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Listen, one more thing before you go, and I know a lot has been crammed into this episode, but I want to make sure I let you know about my YouTube channel. So I didn't do anything on YouTube for the longest time, uh, but per your guys' requests and per some folks that just really wanted some more visual content, whether that be uh, just tips, advice, strategies, or even visuals of the type of coaching that I do, live events and workshops, I have created a YouTube channel that showcases even more in-depth information that complements the podcast, the book, and everything we're doing at Art of Coaching. So if you found value in this resource or you're enjoying the content, please make sure you visit my YouTube channel, subscribe, and we're going to continue to try to put out a wide variety of things that whether you're a coach, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a manager, all in some way, shape, or form help you better interact with people and figure out how to work on bridging the gaps in your own development. So again, check out the YouTube channel, check out anything else that we do at artofcoaching.com. And thanks again for tuning into the show. I appreciate each and every one of you.